now that we've talked about hummingbirds, birds attacking one another, and the smell of New York in like the late 1800s, early 1900s, something, uh, let's actually start the show. Yeah, let's do that. Who are we talking to today? Today we are talking to Lance Gravely and Connie Mulligan, who are on a new paper together, let's pull up the title, called Shortened Telomere Length is Associated with Unfair Treatment attributed to race and African-Americans living in Tallahassee, Florida. And this article was recently selected as the editor's choice article for the most recent issue of AJHB. And we should also note that the first author, the corresponding author of this paper, Peter Reg, cannot join us today because he's currently trying to move, like, cross-country? Something like that? Yeah, and the second <laughs> to LA, I think. And the second author is is the Health Equity Alliance of Tallahassee Steering Committee. So it's a community they might group. Be busy of, right now as well. Well, you know, it's a community. <laughs> it's and it's probably a dispersed group of community members, and we'll find out more in just a second. But it's a community participatory action type of approach, is yeah. what I understand. So. And so this is, you know, right in line with what we've been doing, trying to bridge the AJHB with the broader public. And so featuring some of this work that kind of coincides with new issues coming out, this is all part of that effort. So I think this is actually a really cool study. Oh, sure. I mean, the the relationship of telomere length and psychosocial stress. Yeah, we're all going to be aging prematurely is is sort of the upshoot. Yeah, but also the fact that COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting African-Americans as well. And what... What does stress have to do with that? What does socioeconomics have to do with that? It reminded me also of our, our recent conversation with Barry Bogan, who found that stunting mm-hmm. crisscrosses socioeconomics when a stress is community-wide. And that was a key piece that, that's highlighted in this article. Hey, Lance. What's going on? Hello, Connie. Welcome Hello. to the podcast. Yep. Thank you. Hi. Hello. And yeah, so Chris and I have found that interviewing podcasts during the pandemic We've gotten much more rambling. We go off topic a lot, and it might be rambling's like, good. <laughs> and it might just be like, "Hey, oh my goodness, social interaction! Let's talk about everything as it relates to nothing." Anyway, welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day, which I'm sure is busy, even though we're all under stay-at-home orders of various degrees. Work has not abated in, in any way, shape, or form. It's probably increased. And so as we introduced uh, your, your new article, which has just been given its, its official issue and volume number in AJHB, uh, was chosen as the editor's choice article, and that sadly, Peter Reg, is it Reg? Is that how it's pronounced? Ray. Ray. That Peter Ray could not, sadly, could not be with us because he's busy moving across country. He's moving from from Washington to LA, and yeah, I guess he's pretty. I was imagining busy and also happy to be returning to California. Part of me was imagining it Florida to LA, and I'm like, what a yeah. miserable move to have to accomplish right now. <laughs> We've gotten so used to the idea that the trip, a trip to the grocery store, is a major outing, a major adventure. It is. <laughs> I mean, we say it in jest, but it's become like you know the excitement and stress of you know every two weeks, like ah. Oh, I used to love grocery shopping, and now it is incredibly stressful. (laughs) It's really weird how quickly your perspective can change. Absolutely. So we usually like to start the show similarly with uh, everybody, and that's to kind of learn your own origin stories of how you got into anthropology, like where did it start and why you decided to actually pursue a career in it. Between Lance and Connie, who, whoever wants to go first. Is I want to hear from Connie, because I've talked Connie. to Lance many times. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, Lance, 
Lance has a very, you know, I mean, I think a very traditional, Hmm. you know, background. Mine's like this incredibly crooked path that led me here. Um, Anyway, so so as a grad student, I did tRNA splicing and yeast. All right, All right, so could, probably couldn't be further removed from what I do now. You know, I needed a microscope to see my organism. And so I, I left grad school frustrated with doing something so incredibly specialized and narrow that couldn't really explain it to most people. And I also didn't like having to use a microscope to see my organism. But I really liked genetics. I really liked, you know, seeing how information is passed from one generation to the next. And so then I just kind of threw it totally open and said, oh, who knows where I'm going to go do my postdoc. And I ended up doing a postdoc at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama because I'd gone down to Costa Rica for a field biology course, realized I had jumped too far from my origins and that I really didn't want to sit in the mud listening to frog (laughs) calls. I couldn't understand why anybody wanted to do that. Anyhow, so I ended up at the Smithsonian um, working with uh, Biff Birmingham, who looked at the evolution of fishes and birds, but he was starting a study on humans, not because he was interested in humans, because humans are really kind of boring from an evolutionary Mm. perspective since we're so young, but he saw humans as a good PR vehicle. And so that got me into humans. So I went from, you know, needing a microscope to see my organism to being able to go, you know, in a Cayuga, dug out canoe down the rivers, you know, asking people to give me blood samples and then extracting DNA to try and figure out where they came from and, you know, who first peopled the new world and, you know, where they came from and where they crossed over and how they dispersed through the Americas. And I thought that was just the coolest thing ever. So I decided I was an anthropologist. I never really asked any, any anthropologists if they thought I was an anthropologist. I think that's what we all do is we just, we just kind of stick a flag in the ground when we feel like we've reached a certain point. Uh, and Connie, so two things. One, you, you probably don't remember because you never actually physically met me, but I was at the University of Albany and up until this past fall, and I was the one who coordinated your trip uh, to give a talk. Oh my gosh. you, Albany. But oh. I could never meet you because I had to leave to go give a talk somewhere else at the exact same time. Oh, man. oh my gosh, you're right. Yeah. 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 Oh, that was a great meeting. Yeah, no, I, it was wonderful. I remember the meeting. I, yeah. Wow. And, and I, I have since moved to the University of Notre Dame, but um, I was super excited to have you on the show. I was like, yeah, we've actually conversed over email a number of times. And you're at Notre Dame now? Yeah. Oh, that's where my son graduated from last year. Oh, so, well, we, he sadly could not take any classes from me, but that's okay. <laughs> so Lance, tell us about Lance. Well, you know, it's funny because there are some similarities between Connie's stories and story and mine, believe it or not. I'm also kind of an accidental anthropologist. Because when I was uh, a freshman in college, I was a psychology major. Mm. And the thing I loved about psychology was these grand questions of what it was to be human. And then one semester, um, I ended up in an anthropology class by accident. It was, it was a semester where I had to pick the course I wanted, and then I had to pick 10 alternates. And my 10th alternate was Introduction to Applied Anthropology. And when it showed up on my schedule, I was outraged. And I went to my, I went to my academic advisor. I was like, there must be something else, please, anything. 
And he said, no, I'm sorry, this is all there is. So I pouted all the way to class and a week later I changed my major. Because I realized that the philosophers could ask the question of what it was to be human and the anthropologists could answer it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, from that point on, I was an anthropologist. All my degrees are in anthropology. I did a postdoc in public health, but anthropology has always felt like home. I didn't know you did the postdoc in public health. So that makes a lot of sense for the framing of the work that y'all have been doing. So I wonder, before we sort of launch into the questions about the article, if you could tell us about the Health Equity Alliance of Tallahassee. That actually comes right out of the postdoc at Michigan. Uh, So I was at the Michigan School of Public Health doing a postdoc as part of the W.K. Kellogg Community Health Scholars Program. And the focus of that program was community-based participatory research. Mm -hmm. And what they were trying to do was to equip a new generation of scholars to be successful on the tenure track while also investing the time that it takes to do real participatory research. And so I learned from researchers at Michigan and their community partners at the Urban Research Center in Detroit. And when we started the project in Tallahassee, which um, really began in 2007, the first step was really to try to build relationships with people who were already doing relevant work, uh, relevant community organizing, relevant advocacy, and try to build something that was like the URC in Detroit, where we brought together community members and researchers and policymakers around a shared set of principles grounded in CBPR. And so that was the first few years of the work, really, was just building those relationships, building a shared vision for how we were going to work together as university researchers and community folks. You see a lot of those people actually on the cover of the the current issue of AJHB. That's a great cover. Our steering committee of community members and then several other community residents who were at one of those meetings. Uh, that, that's a photo that was taken at one of our planning sessions for the study that led to the data that's, that's in this paper. I want to note, I really, I just, I really, I love that cover. I love the cover because one of the misconceptions about anthropology is still that we have to go someplace exotic and rough it to do the work, but the work is everywhere people are. They have more of a stake in the work than we do. So right there they are in that photo in the U.S. being being part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And the people you see in that photo have been doing relevant work long before we ever got there. Um, you see Miss Maisha Mitchell, who's the co-founder along with me of the uh, Health Equity Alliance of Tallahassee or HEAT, who's a community organizer who's been working on issues of health equity for decades. Dr. Kasima Boston is in that photo as well. And when we began working together, she was just starting as a graduate student in public health. So she now has her DRPH and is a public health practitioner. You see uh, Dr. Ed Hollyfield, who's a retired cardiologist, but has been a, a fierce advocate for health equity, particularly focused on racial disparities in infant mortality and breastfeeding um, inequities. And, and a range of others who've been, you know, doing this work for a long time. And one of the one of the best parts about it is when you c- come into a community where there's already so much good work going on, and it's very easy to set up a set of relationships of, of mutual respect and learning from one another. So it's not a matter of us just coming in as the experts and saying, "Well, here's what we're going to do." It's a, it's a matter of really respecting the expertise that people have about their own lives and about what's going on. That basic participatory approach, which I really learned at Michigan, was it obviously resonates with um, my ethnographic sensibility. And so it's a a natural kind of marriage. 
I just wanted to say a little more about how Lance and I started working together. So like I said, you know, I'm postdocing in Panama and I'm discovering how cool it is to go to exotic locations and a very different way to apply genetic data. And so that got me interested in using genetic data to reconstruct human evolution and human history, which is what brought me to Florida. And then I was here right at the tail end of Lance's PhD at Florida and actually sat on his committee you know, right before he left, went to Michigan, went to FSU. And then I was thrilled when he came back to Florida, because by that point, my vision of kind of research I wanted to do, what genetics can bring to the table and the sorts of big picture questions I was interested in had gotten even bigger from human evolution and human history to this idea of of human health and how do things like stress impact the human body And so I had the genetics part down, and that's kind of straightforward, A's, G's, C's, and T's. And then it was working with Lance, where it kind of blew my mind to see that we could actually grapple with things like stress and discrimination and, Mm. you know, how much money do you make? I mean, these were questions I'd never even thought about. And so it was really interesting coming from my background of, you know, looking at genetics and we can sequence a whole genome and we can come up with all sorts of measures of diversity and certainties and standard deviations and all that kind of stuff with it. When Lance first told me that, you know, ethnographic interviewing is going in without a prepared questionnaire and just let your participant talk to you, I'm kind of like, how do you even get IRB approval for something like that? I'm pretty much saying, I don't know what I'm going to ask them, but you know, give me approval anyway. I just loved that kind of approach that I could go all the way from genetics to pretty much anything that might affect how we respond to different kinds of stressors. And then Lance had built this whole project where we could look at something that to me was pretty fascinating, discrimination and all the different ways it might impact a person physically, psychologically, emotionally, and then the whole aspect with the CBPR. Because I mean, at the end of the day, I'm kind of a data person. I want as much data as I need to answer a question. And so the the CBPR then provided, our steering committee provided this whole other aspect of, you know, what I see as data that as, as scientists sitting in our offices here on campus, I just certainly didn't have any access to. And, you know, they had completely different experiences where we'd get results and they'd say, oh yeah, that makes sense. We would have expected that. And Mm. that to me was just amazing. I mean, that's the funnest part about being a professor and getting to do research like this. Yeah. And just to build on that sort of origin story, if I could, um, you know, coming at it from my perspective, the central thrust of my whole research program is to identify and challenge racial genetic determinism in medicine and to a lesser extent in public health. And, you know, there are a lot of social scientists who are involved in that work, but most stop at the critique. What's exciting about the collaboration with Connie is that by combining ethnography and genetic data and survey and epidemiologic techniques, we can take the critique seriously and we can test ideas about, well, okay, is there a genetic component to these disparities or is it really, are we looking at the biological consequences of systemic racism? It's really astounding to me that there aren't more research groups doing that still because it's clearly that's what's at stake. And you can see it even playing out now in discussions around Mm COVID-19. It's still a very antiquated uh, nature or nurture kind of thing, and very little research that actually pulls together the data, taking 
genetic and environmental components of complex traits seriously, treating them with equal rigor and trying to put competing hypotheses head to head. We just need a lot more of that still. I think too, I mean, because I sort of thought at the beginning, why don't more people do this? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard. <laughs> well, yeah, you know? there is that. It's, it's hard. I mean, you and I have to be very open-minded and very willing to go outside our zone of comfort. It'd be easy to just stay doing lots of genetics and, you know, not worrying, you know, just controlling for all that cultural environmental stuff. From the data science side of things, Connie, I, I would just, I'm trained in biological and cultural methods, but ethnography is still really, really hard to do. And the time investment, we unfortunately don't have the time to like get the history of your project today, which I would, I would love, but that in and of itself sounds like a major undertaking to get to the point that y'all have to be able to do this kind of work. Collect the data and then find a way to really integrate it all so that we're taking advantage of, you know, this wealth of data we've got and find some way to analyze it all and really do justice to it all. I mean, it's, it's been great, but it's been hard. Uh, so this reminds me of a paper that just came out like a week ago from Marlene Zuck and uh, Hamish Spencer talking about this exact thing that both you, Lance, just said, that it's not nature versus nurture or, you know, the percent contribution of each. But what is really exciting is that interaction and the integration of the two. And I think that's a, a really wonderful segue to actually bring in the article now that you all wrote that just got its official volume and issue with AJHB, where you're looking at telomere length and discrimination among African-Americans in Tallahassee, Florida. So this is the second time this week telomere length has come up associated with stress and with discrimination. And we got into it a little bit, this was with Zanita Thayer, got into it a little bit then, but I was hoping you could maybe, let's dive down into the weeds a little bit about what are telomeres? Why do they tell us anything? And how do you even get information, for example, about discrimination from them? So I'm not sure who wants to take that. This might be a Connie question, I'm thinking. Well, I'll, st I'll start with telomeres. <laughs> yeah, so telomeres are the ends of chromosomes, and they're just repeated sequences. So they're repeated thousands of times. And the reason is because every time a cell divides and the chromosome, all the chromosomes are replicated, you've got this problem with at the very end of the chromosome, the whole replication, the DNA replication machinery can't get on the very end of the chromosome and then start replicating. It has to start a little bit inward just so it gets a hold of it, mm. all right? And so that means every time a cell divides and the whole genome is replicated, you lose a couple bases at the end, all right? So every cell division, you lose anywhere from 50 to 200 base pairs. So we absolutely know that telomeres shorten with age. But on top of that, we've seen evidence that the shortening process can be accelerated with certain things like stress, like discrimination. And this fits in with Arlene Geronimus's weathering hypothesis that, yep. you know, a body gets worn down. The ends of chromosomes literally get worn off, right? Worn, worn off, worn down more quickly. So that's kind of a cool idea, but then I'm like, yeah, but wait a second, how does that really happen molecular? You know, mm -hmm. so how do more base pairs get lost in a single cellular division because someone's stressed? Well, because stress and discrimination and, and, you know, sort of psychological things like that do wear us down and then sort of reduce the activity of lots of things. And so one of the things that whose activity is reduced is an enzyme called telomerase. 
All right, so it's been shown that telomerase activity is reduced in association with stress. While the, the telomeres shorten a little bit with every cell division, then the telomerase goes back and adds on just a little bit, right? So it's kind of this balancing act. You don't want to lose too much, but it doesn't add on the full length that was lost. But if you've got less telomerase activity in the cell, you're going to have less added on after every little bit that's lost. So you can see where it would mean that there's just a little bit more lost in every cell if there's less telomerase, which like I said, it's been associated with, with different types of stress or different types of, of disease. So that's what we were interested in, in looking at. Telomere length is from a genetics standpoint, it's pretty easy data to get. I mean, you, you have to know what you're doing. I mean, Peter, Peter actually generated the entire data set for all the Tallahassee individuals. And then he started looking at some of his early data and decided that the variances around some of the data he had generated were a little too big, that he wasn't comfortable with it. He threw the whole data set out and generated them all over again, oh, wow. all right, to make sure that the data were good. But still, at the end of the day, they're pretty cheap data to, to analyze, and we can do them in-house, which means it's pretty easy to generate telomere data. We can address all these really cool questions about can stress possibly physically, genetically, wear a body, a genome down. It's not like we really understand how causative it might be. So when chromosomes get to a certain critically small length, the cell go, then goes into senescence. It essentially, it stops replicating. It's kind of dead, kind of not dead, kind of zombie-like, right? And so senescent cells have been associated with things like with um, arthrosclerotic plaques, you know, have a high concentration of senescent blood cells. So there might be some causative aspect to this, you know, discrimination might, you know, actually cause an accelerated shortening of telomeres and shortened telomeres might actually cause some sorts of diseases. I mean, our work is purely correlative, but that's kind of the framework for it. So to think about the weathering hypothesis, I'm, I'm thinking about literal weather and how it, like the sweet gum pods that clog up my gutters that then cause water to back up and cause rot in my house and make my house look terrible and my landlord not want to give me my security deposit back <laughs> and results in increased poverty and frustration for us. That's the kind of association we're talking about. There's several pieces in this chain potentially related to replication over and over again. This is, this and is I think, I mean, the picture I have in my head is sort of, the way, the way water can literally smooth stones, right? It's just the relentless action of water, the relentless action of discrimination, right? It just physically wears you down. Mm -hmm. yeah, and the, the temporal component of it is really key as well, because the, the strongest, most consistent evidence in the literature is about the associations between early life exposures and adult telomere length. Looking at adults, the literature is, is a little bit more mixed, with the exception of discrimination, but the data on discrimination seems to be fairly consistent. There aren't a lot of papers out yet now. I think ours is maybe the fifth in this area that looks at associations between racial discrimination and telomere length. And that's one of the places where actually the, the associations seem to be most consistent. A lot of other adult stressors that people have looked at, you get kind of mixed results. And so I think a, a lot of it is really about also specifying what are the meaningful social stressors 
that are producing these kinds of effects. And really, there are probably many different ones uh, in many different domains that are operating at different levels and that are playing out across the lifespan. So that raises actually a lot of other important questions moving forward. So Lance, I've heard you talk about this previously. I wonder if you can unpack a little bit about how you measured the sense of discrimination, because it's not just importantly, whether you personally have experienced discrimination or not, but it gets at the broader social context of discrimination. How did you guys go about that? Well, one of the most important things that came out of the ethnographic phase of the project was that when we talked to people about ways that they had experienced race or racism, often people responded with stories of things that had happened to other people, to their family members, to coworkers, to uh, close friends. And so this got us tuned into the fact that there was a mismatch between the way most of the literature measures experiences of discrimination. Most of that literature focuses on what happens to you devoid of social context. So we took one of the most common measures of uh, experiences of discrimination, one developed by David Williams. And um, that the questions normally ask whether you, the respondent, have experienced unfair treatment in a variety of domains. And we tweaked it just to say, have you or someone close to you experienced unfair treatment in these domains? And that allowed us to look at the differences between direct experience of discrimination and the sense of vicarious discrimination of knowing people close to you who have been treated unfairly. And in some of uh, our earlier work, we have two papers that show that that measure of vicarious racism was associated with blood pressure outcomes through interactions with particular genotypes. And um, one of those papers led by Jackie Quinlan is compelling because it suggests that there's a different biological pathway from vicarious racism to blood pressure than is the case for direct discrimination to blood pressure. In this paper, it turned out that the vicarious measure was not associated with telomere length. The, the only associations that we observe here are with self-reported direct experience of discrimination. And we don't exactly know why, but I think that the fact that we're getting different findings with different uh, phenotypes is just a reminder that this is really complex stuff and that the pathways linking different experiences of discrimination and other kinds of social stressors to different biological outcomes are going to be are going to be varied so we wouldn't necessarily expect the same set of associations with blood pressure that we get with with telomere length and one reason and I'm just sort of speculating here, but one reason is that if you if you look back at the Quinlan et al. paper that we published in 2016, it shows that there's an interaction between vicarious racism and uh, three SNPs that had previously been associated with dimensions of mood disorders and psychosocial distress, whereas the measure of self-reported discrimination was associated with a SNP that had been associated with serum cholesterol in African-Americans. Mm. And so it suggests that, you know, one of the pathways is more directly into cardiovascular and another one is coming more through mood regulation, psychosocial distress, appraisal. And so it could be that that's also why we're seeing the direct self-measure pickup on telomere length. Perhaps there's a more direct chain to release of epinephrine, norepinephrine, 
and the secondary release of cortisol that's producing the oxidative stress that's causing cell replication and, and uh, suppressing telomerase and so forth. So I don't, think we, I don't think we have it worked out. What are all the pathways there? Just to be thinking about the complexity of stressors and that more than likely in the broader domain of uh, research on racial health inequalities, we are drastically underestimating the exposures that people are getting and that we need to start thinking about how those different dimensions of discrimination might have various physiological consequences. The work that Jackie did um, on the blood pressure paper, what was really interesting about that was when we looked at that unfair treatment to self-measure, we picked up associations with SNPs in genes that had been previously identified as being associated with blood pressure. So that was great. So it showed that despite the small sample size of our study, you know, we were able to pick up associations that other people had picked up, maybe not necessarily in African-Americans, not in this specific population, but I mean, it really showed the feasibility of the study. But then what was really interesting, like Lance said, when we added in this measure of vicarious discrimination, and specifically in a statistical interaction with SNPs, we picked up a, a completely different class of genes. There were three mm. different genes. I mean, they weren't, they weren't exactly in the gene bodies themselves, but what was consistent about them was that it was a completely different class of genes that all had to do with mood disorders and anxiety and suicidality and how we might imagine that possibly the powerlessness felt in experiencing you know, discrimination vicariously might impact you more psychologically, more emotionally, but still in the same way, get your blood pressure up. Yeah. And so it was really interesting to think that, you know, this might then have direct implications for racial disparities in health because nobody else is looking at this measure of vicarious discrimination and how it might be impacting discrimination and the whole idea that this experience of discrimination is processed through a completely different biological pathway that, you know, maybe at the end then impacts blood pressure made total sense. So like Lance said, there are a lot of different ways that discrimination may impact a body, physical, mental health. And then the current study where we're looking at telomere length, I mean, that's completely different than looking at how blood pressure is regulated. Mm -hmm. And so it's really looking at how the genome, how chromosome ends are maintained throughout cellular division, right? And it may be simply telomerase activity levels. But to me, it's not at all surprising that, that unfair treatment to self was more important with respect to telomere length, but unfair treatment to self and the vicarious measure were both important for blood pressure. I think that's totally consistent. Broad effects of discrimination on, on health. And so... If you had to package this in a short sentence or two, big picture, especially for like medical doctors, a medical doctor reading this and wondering, right, how should this be impacting my treatment or intake of medical history, those kinds of things? What would be your short one to two sentence, big picture results and then broader applicability of this work? For me, the, the big picture takeaway is that it's more evidence that the toxic stress of dealing with racism is harmful to people's health. And that matters for the kinds of interventions that we ought to be thinking about. We ought to be thinking about dismantling the structures that put people in those stressful situations. And it also means that we should resist the temptation to reduce racial differences to genetic ones. And 
Unfortunately, that remains a common reflex in medicine and in biomedical sciences. So it's yet more evidence that says um, these biological differences are a consequence of structural inequalities, and that's where our attention should be. Yeah, I guess I would say discrimination and maybe more broadly stress. We know it impacts us psychologically. Probably a smaller subset of people know that it impacts your physical health. But what this study shows is that it even, it even affects us at our genome level. It grinds down the ends of our chromosomes. I mean, that's pretty drastic, right? To think that something like, you know, being discriminated against, um, however you might imagine a discriminatory experience being, I don't think many people actually envision it grinding down the ends of your chromosomes like, like we found. And so I think it really means, like Lance says, we need to take seriously how to rectify the, the whole system that maintains discrimination. And if you want to get even broader, all stress. So, so I mean, I, I cannot claim to have experienced, you know, discrimination, but I certainly experienced stress. And so I think if, if we want to make it even more broadly relevant, we can say that, you know, stress has these effects also, but I, I don't want to take it away at all from the uniqueness of racial discrimination and racism. I loop it back around. I saw Alex Brewis at Lance on Twitter regarding discrimination against people who have survived and, and been cured of COVID and almost an internalization of stigma. And then we also see evidence already emerging that African-Americans are at increased risk for COVID-19. So how do we, how do we take what's going on with the pandemic and think in an active way, I guess, more than just think, like, what do we do with your research and what's going on in the world right now and all of our senses of urgency to help each other? Yeah, I absolutely think that the current moment has made this work more urgent. And I was really thinking about that when I answered the earlier question, because, you know, although we had no idea what was coming when we did this work, you could speculate about the downstream consequences of shortened telomeres because we know there are associations with cardiovascular disease, diabetes, uh, immunosuppression. So those are all disease states that would put people at higher risk of serious complications or death from COVID-19. So the, the toxic stresses that we're talking about are directly relevant to the current moment. The other way that it's relevant is I am, I am dismayed, though not surprised, at the fact that um, 19th century ideas about race and disease have reared their head in the response to COVID-19. We've seen politicians and journalists and physicians and biomedical researchers writing in the most prominent places, both in popular media and in scientific journals like JAMA and The Lancet this assertion that the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on people of African descent is because of some unspecified and unmeasured genetic differences. And no, we have no evidence that that's the case. We have ample evidence that the experiences people have in their lifetimes because of systemic racism have many biological consequences that would adequately explain the social patterning of COVID-19 that we see right now. 
And, you know, many people have been articulating this critique for decades. I think it's a real challenge for us now as scientists to say, what are we doing? What are we doing wrong that we're not getting this message through? Because we're still seeing it come out, not just among lay people, but among authors writing in JAMA and The Lancet and places where people really ought to know by now that race is not a good proxy for genetic susceptibility to disease. So I think it's a real, for me, it is, it is really challenged me to think about what, what else do we need to be doing to articulate this critique and make the evidence plain so that it begins to have some real impact. Yeah, I know. I mean, because when, when I lecture on this stuff, you know, I'll say stuff, you know, like if I were to tailor it to COVID stuff, I'd say there is no COVID-19 sensitivity gene that, you know, minorities have that, you know, non-minority populations don't have. Because, I mean, ultimately, you know, I'm trying to think, is that what people are thinking? You know, that, oh, I'm glad I don't have that gene, you know, or even <laughs> a genetic variant. And, you know, I keep coming back to what Lance said. Why, why is it so hard to get it across? And I think because people don't want to believe it. It's, it's somehow easier to believe that there's a genetic variant or a genetic susceptibility that other people have. So that means I don't have to worry about this because I'm not responsible for it and I don't have it. And I, I think... Well, I think here's where the, the, the politics of this kind of science have to be part of the discussion. Uh, and in fact, the first utterance that I heard of somebody suggesting that it was, a, it was genes that could explain why African-Americans were dying at higher rates from COVID-19 was the senator from Louisiana, Bill Cassidy. So he's making, he also happens to be a physician, but he invoked the idea of genetics. And think about what the political implications of that are. If the answer is genetics, well, then the rest of us are off the hook. Yeah. But if the answer is that um, the system is rigged and that there are structural inequities that um, oppress and devalue, devalue people who are racialized as black, okay, now, now all of us are on the hook. And now there's only a political remedy. Uh, and so that means that the, the interest in um, pushing that explanation away are very deeply entrenched. Um, so again, another, way, another reason that we need to think about dismantling systems of oppression is that it will actually probably result in better science. Well, we can hope. I don't have a lot of hope at the moment. Uh, I, I, have, I think of it like we're waiting for a paradigm shift shift and I always remember Semmelweis was ignored for a good long time after his demonstration that hand washing was effective before the shift came so but let's hope it doesn't take uh, until after our deaths before that paradigm shift happens. But on that note I guess that does kind of bring us to our next question of doing good science of what's next for you all. Are you going to be taking on some work regarding COVID-19 and and health disparities or what other projects do you have going right now? I do have a couple of writing projects going on right now about COVID-19. One of them in particular, if things go well, we may have an opportunity to talk about down the road. But a lot of that is, you know, sort of trying to frame the issues and set an agenda for work. We still have a lot of data from this project in Tallahassee that we want to get off our, our desks. And for me, one of the goals for this summer is really to work up more of the ethnographic data Uh, around the experience of vicarious racism and link it to the discussion we're having about why might we see different biological pathways linking vicarious versus self-reported discrimination to to different health outcomes. 
also got dried blood spots from the sample from the, the study. And so I've got a grad student who's interested in looking at cortisol and different stress hormones from them to see if we can get, you know, a biological measure of stress, you know, that then might link to some of the different measures of, of discrimination to see if we can provide step-by-step -step linkage there of what might be going on. And some other projects just looking more for signatures of stress and how it impacts the genome and then different health outcomes. Speaking of grad students, we always like to start to wrap by giving you the opportunity to recruit or advertise your programs or your work if you are looking for grad students or want to make it easy for listeners to find the work that you do. I'm looking for grad students starting fall 2021. I'm looking to add one or two grad students to my lab if somebody's interested. I mean, everybody in my lab does genetics, you know, in one way or another, but they definitely all branch out and use the, the genetic data in a lot of different ways, almost all to do with questions of how does discrimination or how does stress, sexual violence, how do these sort of extreme stressors impact us at a molecular level and then at the, the health outcome level. Yeah, and I'm also gonna be accepting grad students for fall uh, 2021. None of my grad students so far have ever worked on race. They have worked on discrimination and stress, but uh, it's an eclectic bunch of, of people who have their own agenda. You know, as is often true for people who come in really with a background in cultural anthropology, most uh, have a sort of independent line of research that they want to pursue. And I'm happy to work with students like that, or if there are students who wanna be involved in the broader collaboration, uh, I'm happy to work with students uh, in that way as well. So, you know, we're both at the University of Florida in the Department of Anthropology, so students can find us on the department website. Uh, my personal website is just my last name, gravely.org, and people can reach out to me that way or by email as well, or can find me on Twitter at Lance Gravely, and uh, be happy to talk to uh, any um, anyone who's interested. I'm on the department website, and my lab website is conniejmulligan.wordpress.com. Well, this has been a fantastic uh, interview to, with both of you. Um, I use both of your work in, in my, my Fundamentals of Anthropology, Bioanthropology wow. class. And every single time and every single semester, students have been blown away because they have never thought of these things before. And so thank you both so much for your excellent work. And I look forward to seeing more. Well, thank you for that. Send us some of those uh, Fighting Irish, are we? <laughs> <laughs> Will do. <laughs> Thank you. This, this was great. This was a real pleasure. This was a pleasure for us as well. Thank you both for taking the time. All right. Stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, we'll have to do this again sometime because it was wonderful. All Sounds right. good. Take care. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to The Sausage of Science with Chris and Kara. A thank you to our sponsors, the Human Biology Association and the American Journal of Human Biology. To learn more about the research discussed in this episode, be sure to check out the latest issue of the American Journal of Human Biology, Volume 32, Issue 3, for the months of May and June. If you like this podcast, be sure to share us, rate us, and keep telling us what episodes you'd like to hear next. <laughs>